And tonight we continue, if you will, part two of our study of 2 Kings chapter 2. Now, I need to read the whole chapter again because it's just very hard to kind of jump back in. You can hit pause on your, on your TV or your video and hit play, but it, uh, it doesn't work that way with a sermon. And uh, I, I, it was a week ago we were in this text. We tried to get through it, but we paused about halfway through because it is a wonderful, uh, wonderful passage. I'm going to be reading tonight from the Legacy Standard Version, chapter 2, verses 1 through 25. Now it happened when Yahweh was about to take up Elijah by a whirlwind to heaven, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for Yahweh has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elijah said, as Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, I will not forsake you. So they went down to Bethel. Then the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that Yahweh will take away your master from over you today? And he said, Yes, I know. Be silent. And Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for Yahweh has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, I will not forsake you. So they came to Jericho. Then the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho approached Elisha and said to him, Do you know that Yahweh will take away your master from over you today? And he answered, Yes, I know. Be silent. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for Yahweh has sent me to the Jordan. And he said, As Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, I will not forsake you. So the two of them went on. Now fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood opposite them at a distance. But two of them, the two of them stood by the Jordan. And Elijah took his mantle and folded it together and struck the waters and they were divided here and there so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. Now it happened when they crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. And he said, you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. As they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire. And it separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. And Elisha was seeing this and he was crying out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and struck the waters and said, Where is Yahweh, the God of Elijah? Indeed, he himself also struck the waters And they were divided here and there, and Elisha crossed over. Then the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho opposite him saw him and said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. 
And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. Then they said to him, Behold now, there are with your servants fifty excellent men. Please let them go and search for your master, lest the spirit of Yahweh has taken him up and cast him on some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him until he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent, therefore, fifty men, and they searched three days, but did not find him. So they returned to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? Then the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold now, the habitat of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. And he said, Bring me a new jar and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. And he went out to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says Yahweh, I have purified these waters. There shall not be from their death or barrenness any longer. So the waters have been purified to this day, according to the word of Elisha, which he spoke. Then he went up from there to Bethel, and as he was going up by the way, young boys came out from the city and mocked him and said to him, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. Then he looked behind him and saw them, and he cursed them in the name of Yahweh. Then two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 lads of their number. And he went from there to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pause to thank you again for this portion of your word which has our attention. We love this story. It is captivating. We witness you through the pages of scripture acting in mighty ways through your servants. But we pray that along with the marvel at the details of the story that you will teach us concerning yourself so that we might know how we are to live in these days. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we saw last Sunday evening, the question of this text is found in verse 14, out of the mouth of Elisha as he stands there at the Jordan his master Elijah being taken up into glory and he's standing there with the mantle that has been passed on to him and he asks the question in verse 14, where is Yahweh, the God of Elijah? Now when Elisha asks that question, he's not asking it with a cynical voice. He's not asking it um, somehow challenging God's integrity. He is not asking it as a, a cynic or a unbeliever. He is a man who understands that in and of himself, he has no power. And so that if he is going to take up this mantle that has been given to him by God, that God himself must show up. It's not enough for Elijah. Elijah understands he is not all that. Even if he'd been mentored under one of the greatest prophets to ever be a prophet in Israel, Elijah has an understanding that he's a mere man. And so he publicly wants to honor God and give God, as it were, the opportunity to glorify himself. 
And uh, wow, uh, there's, there are witnesses there, these 50 prophets who were standing across the river. Apparently, they'd been hanging around on that side of the river for a while. They witnessed this, and God hears the prayer of, essentially, it is a prayer of Elisha, and honors uh, his servant by doing the same as he had done for Elisha and causing the waters to part. And again, last week we saw that that is bringing us back to uh, the time of when Israel first came into the promised land and how God acted for them. So the question, where is Yahweh? It's not like um, uh, as if they're, they're doubting that God exists, but there's this sense that, well, God revealed himself in power in the past through Moses and Joshua. God revealed himself in power in the past at Carmel through Elisha, Elijah. Is that God still around or is he taking a vacation? Is he like, remember what Elijah said on Mount Carmel to the prophets of Baal? He mocked them saying, maybe Baal's occupied. He's, he's literally, he's, maybe he's in, he's in the, the loo, the bathroom. That's how ba- uh, Elijah mocked Baal. Maybe Baal's taking a vacation. Maybe he's taking a nap. So the question is, is the God of Israel a God who's bound? Is he bound by time? Is he bound to only work with one man or with one woman? And this was a temptation not only for that generation, but for us as well, isn't it? Um, we noted last week that there are men that God uses in particular ways and powerful ways, and he gifts them, and he uses them in unique ways in, in generations. And when those men come to time when they pass or, or they're passing soon, the question arises, what are we going to do without so-and-so? And that can be a reverent question. It can be a, a question of love. In other words, it's an, it can be a question of, of, Lord, we recognize that you've been good to us in giving this man to us. But it can also be a question that reveals a little bit of too much trust in men and forgetting that God is the same in every generation. This can be true in churches. When we come to know a pastor and to love that pastor and to trust that pastor and maybe God takes him on to glory or moves him on, whatever the case may be, and we may think, well, well, we grew to trust that pastor and, and listen to his voice and how are we going to do with another pastor? And, and churches face this. Um, the, the question, where is Yahweh, the God of Elijah, is a question that's really in every generation, wherever God's people is found. It's, it's there. Here in New England, uh, we have all around us evidence of God moving in great ways in the past. New England, in a sense, was the center of the, of, of the great awakening in, in the United States. And it's just hard for us to believe that George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards had such unbelievable gospel um, fruit in this region. People would flock to hear Whitfield. And, and it wasn't, those days uh, weren't necessarily all, uh, all as religious as we sometimes think. People were godless, people were unbelieving, and people by the thousands were converted under the ministry of Whitfield. That, that happened in this area. It's hard to believe. And we see these white meeting houses all around when people used to go to church. Where is the God of 
Elijah? Where is the God of Edwards? Where is the God of Whitfield, we might ask? The answer, of course, in the text is he hasn't gone anywhere. He is the same God, and he is with his people in every generation, the fullness of who he is. He is the same unbounded God. That's my title for tonight, the same unbounded God. And what I mean by unbounded is God is not bound by time. God is not bound by place. God is not bound to only work with a particular man as if God is like a coach. And if he only has a few set of players and if his, if his first string team gets injured, then God does, you know, has to go to the backup and then the backup and, 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 <laughs> well, you know, that some of you might be interested in that these days uh, with uh, football going on, a certain team. But, but is God limited? Does he only have a certain roster? Is, is God going to have a bad season or, or a bad year if, because of the guys he has to work with? Of course not. Of course not. He's the same unbounded God, faithful and unbounded. There's much we learn about God in this text. There's so much in this narrative for us to look at. But in verses 1 through 18, and we're not going to go through uh, it again, particularly verses uh, 1 through 14, but we, we saw last week that we may have a new prophet in Elijah, but we have the same God of power. He is the same God of power. He reveals that in the waters being parted there in verse 14. And he reveals that as well uh, through obviously giving to Elisha the gift of prophecy. He has honored Elisha by Elijah being, Elisha being able to witness Elijah being taken up into glory. And Elisha has the authority of Elijah. It's, it's an interesting scene, verses 15 through 18. The, the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho. Uh, you might call these guys seminary students. I don't know. They, they maybe are you know, prophet trainees, uh, prophets in training. And uh, they are devout. They are zealous. Uh, often maybe like young fellows, they are uh, in their zeal. They lack wisdom. And so they, they just loved Elijah. They revere Elijah. And for them, the idea of Elijah, even if his spirit has been taken up, the idea of Elijah's body just lying somewhere out on the hills is unthinkable. And again, this is, this is a little tough for us because in our culture, not as big deal what you do with the body. But in biblical culture, the body is significant because of the doctrine of the resurrection. And so they want to find the body. They want to honor the body. They want to give the body a proper burial. Elijah's, Elisha's undoubtedly told them what happened, but they, they can't believe it, perhaps. So they persist. Let us go look. Let us go look. And he says, you shall not send, verse 16. But finally, he's embarrassed. It, it, they've, they've asked him so much. It's almost like he's, you know, Maybe he doesn't want to honor Elijah. The loyalty to Elijah is so strong that, that he doesn't want to seem as though he's keeping them from honoring this great man. So he finally says send, but he knows it's a, they're not going to find him. He knows exactly what happened to the body of Elijah. It went right up into glory. So they search for three days. And Elijah, did I not say to you, do not go? 
He's rather direct, isn't he? Um, there it is. Well, in, in verses 15 through 24 then, uh, we, we move from two different prophets, same God of power, to two cities, two responses, same God of holiness. Two cities, two responses, same God of holiness. I know there's a lot to that second point or that first point to tonight's sermon as we look at verses 15, uh, sorry, 19 and following. Elisha has been uh, living while, while the men for those three days have been looking for the body of Elijah, which he knows they're not going to find. He's staying in Jericho. And my understanding is that Jericho, though not far from Jerusalem, because of its, um, it's in a valley and it's, uh, uh, I can't remember exactly, at or below sea level, it's actually a very uh, tropical, almost tropical climate. You can go from arid kind of winter in Jerusalem and go virtually a few miles to Jericho and you find palm trees. You find palm trees in Jericho, you don't necessarily find that in other parts of Israel on the hills. So it's a pleasant climate, and the people point that out. But they point out to Elisha, the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. Now what they mean by unfruitful becomes more clear in verse 21. It's not just that their gardens aren't growing. It's not just that their crops aren't doing well. Apparently, it is hindering Uh, somehow the people understand it is causing barrenness. Uh, That's a pretty serious thing. And of course, Jericho had been cursed by Joshua in Joshua, by God in Joshua, I believe it is chapter 6. And we've already seen in 1 Kings 16 that uh, one man who, who wanted to rebuild the city uh, lost his son because of that, because of the curse. But apparently uh, the curse still remains in the form of the water actually harming the people. But it's interesting. Here's Jericho. Jericho, that was when the people wanted to come into the promised land. Jericho with its walls. Jericho that... Uh, wanted to hunt down the spies, Jericho that was in rebellion against God, Jericho that was under the curse of God. Jericho is the first city to recognize Elisha as a true prophet and in humility to come to him and to address him and to request help. Do you see it in verse 19? This is Jericho and the people of Jericho. Behold, the habitat of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. Notice how they address him, my Lord. That's a whole lot different than the boys of Bethel calling him old baldy. So Bethel and Jericho are set in contrast here. And Jericho, originally a pagan city, now inhabited by Israelites and maybe a mixture of different people. Bethel, a city of Israel, the contrast of the two responses is there in the text. The people of Jericho come and humbly to God's servant 
come to him and humbly appeal. They're short in their words. They're reverent in how they address him. They turn to him. They're not calling on the prophets of Baal. They're not calling on the prophetesses of Asherah. They're coming to the servant of Yahweh. And he is the same God. He is? Didn't he judge Jericho? Weren't they under the curse? Doesn't he change here? No, he doesn't change. Because God, as he revealed himself to him through Moses and in the scriptures, is a God abounding in mercy and loving kindness and compassion. That is who he has always been. He's not a God like the pagan gods who gets his kicks out of messing with people's water to cause barrenness. He is a holy, gracious, loving, compassionate, merciful God. In his holiness, he will judge, and he does place Jericho under the curse. But what a beautiful picture of God in his character, that with just a little bit of evidence of humility, and as they respond to the servant of the Lord, who is the mouthpiece of God, God honors them. Now, what's the deal with the salt? I don't know. There may be significance. Of course, salt was involved in some of the offerings of Israel. But apparently, God reveals to Elisha, this is what he should do. Bring a new jar, put salt in it. And notice what they do in verse 20. This is, this is significant. We just kind of flit over it. You know, it's not a big deal. But they could have said, what? I mean, we have water that's causing people to be barren, to uh, causing all kinds of problems. And you want us to bring you a new jar and put some salt in it. Yeah, right. Okay. But that's not what they do. It's not what it says. He says, bring me a new jar, put salt in it. So what the text reads? So they brought it to him. Obedience. <laughs> you know, sometimes we make of obedience... A big deal. It, it is a big deal, but we make it up to be this thing. It's so hard to obey the Lord. You know, it's just, oh, it's, it's I think I'll try. It's, it's so difficult. And, and it is because of our nature, but let's be clear that God's commands are not hard. And sometimes it's just bring me a new jar and put some salt in it. <laughs> What does God want you to do? You don't need to pray about it. Just bring him a new jar and put some salt in it. Now, don't do that tomorrow. That's not what the message of the sermon is. But, but maybe it is. Maybe it's something as simple as um, uh, read your Bible. Oh, I don't know what to do. <laughs> you have a Bible? Before we go to bed tonight, open it. it you know, this is, this is I'm, I'm, I'm talking to myself as much as you. I'm saying in our sinful nature, we sometimes make obedience into this torturous kind of difficult thing when sometimes it's rather plain. So, so they, they obey. This is, this is an evidence of humility, of a measure of repentance. They're honoring the Lord's servant. And it is according to the nature of God to respond in mercy. And the waters, we learn in verse 22, have been purified to this day 
according to the word of Elisha, which he spoke. And the word of Elisha was the word of God, was the will of God. Notice the contrast then with the city of Bethel, not too far away, but, but also not, not a couple miles away. This is a bit of a trip to more central highlands of Israel. Bethel was a, one of the centers for um, the false worship of Israel in the north, where one of the golden calves was, was worshipped. It's a city that's in um, rebellion against God and, and has entertained all kinds of false worship for generations now. And he's going up. Uh, literally the land from Jericho to Bethel, you're going up. And if you're continuing on your way up to Carmel, which we learn he's on the way up there, it's, it's like going up. He's going northwest and it's a largely an uphill walk. And we struggle with this, this passage. I, I alluded to this last week, but I can't help but tell a little story here. And I remember it. Again, I was probably a boy of, um, oh, I don't know, five or six years old. And uh, I didn't see my grandfather very much, um, my dad's dad. And he was a missionary, though. And, I, and then when, when he lived in New Jersey, he was a, a Spanish-speaking church planter. And I just revered my grandfather. Um, and somewhat comically, my, my dad's dad, unlike my dad and me, had this beautiful, thick head of hair till the day he died. Um, just this beautiful, gray, thick hair. And, uh, but I just, as a little boy, I just revered my grandfather. We would go once every summer down to New Jersey to the shore where, near where they lived in Ocean City. It was the highlight of the year for me. And, and uh, Grandpa Blake would um, always greet us the same way. He'd be waiting, and maybe it'd be a hot July or August, and he'd be out there whatever time of night we pulled in, and I could expect that Grandpa Blake would be there and just give me the biggest hug and kiss on the cheek. I revered him. So my brother and I were, I remember distinctly one time, it was just Grandpa was driving, Dad was in the passenger seat, and Eli and I, my brother's name, Elisha, we were in the back seat, and, uh, and uh, I don't know how it came up. We must have made a comment or chuckled about Dad being bald. And Grandpa's driving in the front seat, and again, I'm a little boy, I revere him. And he, without even flinching, wow, boys, you better be careful what you say about your dad's baldness, because in the Bible, the prophet Elisha when he was being made fun of because he was bald, God sent two bears to eat up all those little boys. <laughs> I don't think I made fun of my dad being bald the rest of my life. Uh, it, it made a big impression on me. And I got to just believe in the front seat, both my dad and my grandpa were just chuckling as in the back seat, two little boys were just wide-eyed. Um, he didn't laugh after it either. <laughs> so for all we knew, uh, whoa, we better be careful. Well, it's not about the lesson. The moral of the story is uh, don't make fun of the, 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 the men in the room tonight who are challenged uh, uh, when it comes to their, their amount of hair on our heads. Uh, that, that's not the major lesson. Uh, 
but we struggle with this. And, and those who are critics of the Bible, uh, they might say, well, oh, what, what, what kind of story is that? What kind of God is it that sends two bears to tear up and shred and devour 42 boys? Okay, let's step back for a minute in context. Uh, this is the prophet of the Lord, and there's no indication he's gone to cause trouble in Bethel. He is going up, verse 23, by the way. And these young boys, now we don't know their age, but they're old enough. They're old enough. They're old enough to be responsible. They're old enough to know the law of God. They're old enough to organize themselves. Think about it. If 42 of their number were slain by the bears, that means there was a lot more than just 42. This is a group of young men, perhaps aging, who knows, 12, 13, 14. These are lads, but these are not, these are not little boys. And they have gathered together. And it is likely that they have been influenced by the adults in the town. Remember, Bethel is a site of blasphemous worship. Yahweh is not honored and worshiped as he should. Elijah and Elisha are likely thought of as enemies, mocked by the parents. And there's, there's a remnant of godly people, doubtless in Bethel, but, but for the most part, they're cynical. They don't think too highly of these prophets who insist on God being worshipped in only the way that God revealed he would be worshipped. And so the boys don't think too highly of God's prophet. And they go out, huge group huge group this is a this is a mob this is a threatening mob and and it wouldn't take much maybe for things to start turning ugly and they've apparently heard that Elisha is bald he likely has his head covered as he's going along and in the dress of that day often the man would have his head covered but they're, they're mocking him. They're, they're making fun and belittling the servant of Yahweh. It could be, verse 23, that they're even mocking the report of Elijah going up to glory. It may be cynicism. Oh, Elijah went right up to heaven, did he? Oh, why don't you go up to Elisha just like Elijah, huh? Go up, you bald head, go up. We don't know. It could be that. It could be just, just keep going on your way. Get out of here. Get out of town. You're not wanted here. Notice the contrast, again, between Jericho and Bethel. Two cities, two responses, same God of holiness in his holiness, God has compassion upon the humble and the contrite. And in his holiness, God pours out his wrath 
upon those who oppose him and his word. Elisha, verse 24, looks behind him, saw them, cursed them in the name of Yahweh. I want to read from Dale Ralph Davis on this point. It's very helpful. He says, The word that Elisha spoke here was a curse in the name of Yahweh. And then there were the bears. Davis says, We must size up these bears correctly. They were covenant bears. The covenant curse of Leviticus 26, verse 22, God had said there, I will let loose wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children. That covenant curse explains this episode. Covenant infidelity, hatred of Yahweh's representative, and perhaps persisting in Bethel's perverse worship, covenant infidelity has brought the covenant curse. Has Elisha been wrong to curse? Had Elisha been wrong to curse, one would assume Yahweh would not have fulfilled the curse. That Yahweh did so validates Elisha's curse. He Here is not an irritable prophet, but a judging God. Very important. I want to read a little more. This is, this is helpful. What is the particular import of the Bethel disaster, says Davis? Does it not tell us that Yahweh's curse finds those in Israel who despise him? Wow, think about that. Does it not tell us that there may be among the official card-carrying covenant people of God the radar they, rather, they may be among the official card-carrying covenant people of God, but the radar of Yahweh's curse will find those who show they detest him by despising his servants. Should this text not fear, stir in us a humble fear? Matthew Henry, long ago, says Davis, pointed us to the right attitude in response. Quote, Matthew Henry, Let the hideous shrieks and groans of this wicked, wretched brood make our flesh tremble for the fear of God. So my grandfather was warning my brother and me, somewhat in jest, but he was right. You shall honor your father and mother. The Lord has said... And it's no small thing to disobey God. And the idea, while we may chuckle about the baldness and, and what impression that might have upon a few young boys, we have to let ourselves for a moment think of the horror of that moment. These young men who are scorning God and despising his word mocking his servant. God had shown kindness and mercy to Jericho for their reception of his servant. Bethel's boys mock God's servant. And God in his holiness sends two apparently large, strong, fast female bears and they tear up 42 of these young men. 
it's a bloody scene. And no one ever forgot that in that generation. There likely were even some young men walking around Bethel for years to come with scars from those two bears. God is not to be messed with. We are certainly not to take upon ourselves uh, the role of cursing. We are to bless and not curse, the Lord told us. But this is a unique situation and a unique time. But the reality of who God is and the reality that he should be feared should continue on down to this day. And we should live in fear of the Lord. Finally tonight and briefly, in verse 25, we find two places of idolatrous worship in the all-present God, the same all-present God. Two places of idolatrous worship, the same all-present God. It's interesting, it's just there, verse 25, he goes from Bethel to Mount Carmel, and he returned to, Mount Samaria, to Samaria. In some ways, there's three places of idolatrous worship. Bethel, Carmel, where Baal had been worshipped, and Samaria, where is the capital of Israel, and where, again, God is worshipped in an idolatrous way. It's no accident. Why would God send Elisha to Carmel, to Bethel, to Carmel, and to Samaria. He could have just stayed in Judah. Judah is more friendly to Yahweh generally. Remember in Judah, they haven't had Jezebel and and her brood, her gang. They've generally had more, they've had kings generally more friendly to Yahweh and the God of Israel and his ways. So why send Elisha up into the heart of the territory of those who don't want Yahweh, those who worship him wrongly. It may be, I would suggest, that one of the lessons here is that God hasn't conceded one square inch of his land. And he's not going to give it up. It's his. And even though the majority of the people apparently don't want him, remember God said he would preserve 7,000 who didn't bow the knee. That's not very many out of all of the population. Apparently the polls are, yeah, we want Baal worship. Yeah, we want the golden calves. We want all the theatrics. We want Jezebel's ways. God doesn't care. He's not interested in pleasing people. He's not a politician. And sometimes, which is exasperating to sinners, he sends his preachers and his prophets right into the heart of the idolatrous centers. In other words, it may be frustrating to sinners, but God doesn't take a hint. 
he's not going anywhere. He's not going to concede. And this is a lesson. Watch it. And especially young people, all of us need to remember this. We live in a time, and with this I'll close, in which secular thinking is so dominant, so the norm. What I mean by that, secular as I mean is, is God is irrelevant. God is irrelevant. God is history. God is maybe something you do in the confines of Sunday. But, but God has no place here. God has no place at work. God has no place at school. He has no business in politics. Um, he's not welcome in my heart or my mind or how I think about my sexuality, my morals. God is irrelevant. I mean, there could be a sign in New England that said, God not wanted here. And it would be true. But God's not going to honor it. It's his land, the whole earth. And the day is coming when Jesus, as we learned this morning, will return. And he will reclaim every square inch. So young and old, note, take note. God, there's no one as gracious as God. There's no one as merciful as God. But make sure you're on the right side. Because you may be in a time where you think, nobody believes in God anymore. I mean, that's so restrictive. It may seem right now as though God is on the losing team, frankly, put it that way. Don't count him out. He is the same, all-present God. And he has not and he will not concede ultimately one square inch of this planet. And nor will he concede one ounce, as it were, of his glory. For he has said, I will not give my glory to another. This is God. Where is the God of Yahweh, the Yahweh, the God of Elijah? As we learned last week and we learned again tonight, he's right here. So let us press on to know him in fear, in hope, in trust, and an encouragement that he hasn't changed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice tonight that you are the same God. We confess we're a little bit frightened Uh, We recognize that in our hearts are the same kind of unbelieving, idolatrous hearts that were expressed in those Bethel boys. So we want to be like the people of Jericho. We want to come to you humbly. We want to come to you asking you to do what only you can do. We want to honor you. We want to honor your word. We want to honor your servants who teach and preach the word insofar as they're faithful to that word. We pray that you would look upon our small assembly tonight with your kindness and our church and other local churches that are seeking to be faithful to you as we are surrounded by a culture that has written you off. We pray that we will not bow the knee to Baal but that we will be faithful, trusting that you are with us and you will never leave us or forsake us. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.